Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk about Aaron Zellin's new book, Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad. And I'm so happy to have Aaron on the show to discuss his new book. So congratulations first on your book, Aaron. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's uh, pretty exciting that it's finally out. Yes, I know you've done so much research and so many years of research, which we'll, we'll talk about a little later, but it's, I'm sure, an amazing feeling to see it actually in print, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. For our listeners, Aaron is the Richard Burrow Fellow at Washington Institute for Near East Policy in Washington, D.C., and he's a visiting research scholar at Brandeis University. He's also the founder of the widely acclaimed and cited website jihadology.net, and they have a podcast, too, called Jihad Pod. So if you're a podcast follower, we recommend that as well. Why don't we just start off talking about what the inspiration of your book was and some of the background of how it came about? Yeah, well, uh, back in 2011, um, you know, we had the Tunisian Revolution, and at the time, uh, most people talked about how Tunisia was, you know, always relatively secular and cosmopolitan, and even their Islamist movement, uh, Anafta, was relatively moderate compared to, say, other other Muslim Brotherhood-like groups. Uh, so when I saw in my daily routine of checking the jihadi forums back then, which was before jihadis used social media, um, I saw this announcement that there was going to be an event for, uh, or a conference or inaugural conference for this new group called Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia in around May 2011. I was like, this is really uh, interesting and curious. Uh, it's only like four months after the revolution too. And it kind of just brought me down this rabbit hole. I didn't really know at that point that I would end up doing my PhD and also publishing a book on the topic, but it was definitely curious compared to other places like Libya or Egypt or Yemen or Syria where it wasn't necessarily quite as surprising that you saw growth in uh, jihadism. So essentially I wanted to, uh, once I did uh, decide to do my PhD in the fall of 2013, explain why this movement grew and why it became so relevant after the revolution. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, uh, more people paid attention uh, because there are so many Tunisians that end up going to Syria to join up with the Islamic State. So um, I added sort of that component to it, to the actual book, because the PhD only went up to 2013 when I began it. So to do this research, what type of research did you do? Uh, field work, historical, etc.? And also, how many years of research culminated into this book? I uh, triangulated a ton of different resources and sources. So um, I did have the opportunity in 2012 and 13 to go to Tunisia to actually meet members of Ansar al-Sharia and sort of follow them and what they're doing and ask them questions about their motivations and reasons behind what they're doing. I also got to go to the mosques and see what was going on in there. Um, I even met a return foreign fighter, one of the early ones um, in 2013, who had gone to Syria and actually already returned. Um, in addition to that, to sort of supplement this, I had the opportunity to talk to people in the various main political parties at the time, like Nahda and Nida Tunis, um, as well as civil society activists, 
um, and students. So I was able to sort of contextualize a lot of things and also see how other people were viewing and reacting to this. In addition to this, uh, thanks to uh, Thomas Heghammer, I actually was able to get access to a number of biographies and magazines from the jihadi movement in the 1980s and 1990s um, in Arabic uh, and was able to sort of map out anything related to Tunisians involved in the movement from these sources and therefore start to piece together some of the early history because um, I think, uh, you know, in the aftermath of 2011, some people were writing about Tunisian jihadism, but it was mainly just in reaction to what was happening then. And there was really nothing written about Tunisians involved in this prior to the revolution, even though after doing all this research, I realized that there's actually this really rich history and a lot of involvement, and there are many key players. Um, the thing, though, is that uh, the Tunisians weren't necessarily, like, the top leaders, like uh, sort of you saw with Egyptians and Saudis and Yemenis, um, or key ideologues like you saw with a number of Libyans and Palestinians and Jordanians in the movement, um, but rather they're more middlemen linking different parts of the broader global jihadi network, and that's why they're so highly connected. Um, in addition to sort of the primary sources, I also um, was able to get access to a number of court documents um, in the United States as well as a bunch of different European countries, so in Spain, Italy, Belgium, um, Germany, uh, France, uh, as well as stuff from the EU. So I was able to sort of put together uh, different Tunisians that also had been involved in various plots and attacks over the years prior to the revolution. Um, and also, um, in addition to this, I was able to get access to Jutta Clausen's um, Western Jihadism database, which is based at Brandeis University. Um, so I was able to also see anything that I missed there. And this, in addition to my own uh, primary source collection, of stuff more recently from, you know, 2001 on, uh, I was able to pretty much piece together a lot of that history um, prior to 2011. And then anything post-2011, I had 17,000 files related to Ansar al-Sharia um, based off of the primary sources that they released themselves. So I was able to really dig deep into what they were doing and the activities that they are doing on the ground in Tunisia after the revolution um, as well as all the primary sources related to the Islamic State and AQIM and Katibarukbab and Nafi, which helped piece together some of the more recent stuff from the last five years or so. So I was able to really put together a lot of different things to build up this history um, and provide the first history on this movement in sort of this holistic manner. So why don't we start off with the 2011 revolution? In your opinion, could you say that the revolution was somewhat of a catalyst toward jihadism becoming a force in Tunisia? Or, as you sort of alluded to already, there were pre-existing conditions that helped this? Yeah, I think that there were sort of historical conditions, but also definitely conditions post-revolution that were very relevant. So, um, in February 2011, there was this general prisoner amnesty, which I describe as sort of the original sin of the revolution, of course, I think that those that were political prisoners should have been left out, and it's totally legitimate. However, there are a number of jihadis that were let out, too. And I should note that there was no, like, conspiracies or anything in the way that Gaddafi let out prisoners or the Assad regime let out prisoners in uh, Libya and Syria, respectively. It's sort of a way to stoke extremism um, and to discredit sort of the opposition, though. 
in the Tunisian case, this was more as a consequence of just wanting to move on from the Bin Ali uh, regime and era and to bring forth a new system of justice and accountability. Um, but as a result of this, about 1,300 individuals that had been involved in jihadi-related actions um, were let out of prison, um, including about 300 who had previously fought in Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, Bosnia, and Algeria. Um, so these people were some of the people that had prior experiences before 2011. What compounded this later was the fact that after the Tunisians had their constituent assembly elections in October 2011, which was to uh, get a parliament to essentially write the new constitution, um, was that Anatta, the main Islamist party in Tunisia, sort of had this light-touch approach related to Ansar al-Sharia. And part of this derives from their own history because they themselves were cracked down upon harshly um, in the late 1980s and early 1990s um, uh, after Bin Ali came into power. Um, and as a result, they felt or thought or hypothesized um, that, look, we're now in power in Tunisia 15 years later. Um, if we do the same thing to these Al-Qaeda guys, um, since Ansar al-Sharia was just a front group for Al-Qaeda, uh, then maybe in 15 years Al-Qaeda would be ruling Tunisia, and nobody wants that. Um, so if, if we're going to put it into that time frame, then it would have been like around 2025 or so, which seems a lot sooner now than 2011. But be that as it may, um, this provided space for uh, Ansar al-Sharia to operate, to proselytize, to recruit, to build up its activities, um, and didn't have too much harassment, even though they were a jihadi organization. Um, what also helped Ansar al-Sharia was that they decided to sort of have this dawah-first approach and not do sort of more jihadi attacks, uh, as we see classically with al-Qaeda as more of a clandestine organization, but really uh, AST built up more of a uh, social movement. Um, and therefore, this brought in the scope of individuals who could potentially be interested and involved because they were doing lectures, they were doing social services and charity efforts, in addition to demonstrations and the like. Um, so this is what really provided the initial platform for their growth. So I want to get back to the Dawa system of AST in a little bit. But could you tell us what the Tunisian jihadism looks like in the Tunisian context versus the global? I know you mentioned more Tunisians were involved as middlemen versus more higher figures in different groups. So maybe what does Tunisian jihadism look like? Since, uh, you know, it was relatively a hostile environment to operate in Tunisia, this is also another reason why prior to 2011 most people didn't realize Tunisians were really involved in the movement because much of the activism was happening outside of its borders, whether in Afghanistan, Europe, Bosnia, Iraq, etc. Um, and because they weren't sort of early adopters or a large group of people that went to Afghanistan in the 80s, they weren't as plugged in as, say, other nationalities, such as the Saudis, Yemenis, uh, Egyptians, etc. Um, they really started to build up a lot of their networks more so in Europe in the 1990s in relation to sort of the Bosnian War as well as the Algerian Civil War. Um, and, and many of these Tunisians, because they weren't highly regarded in the Afghan arena against the Soviets, 
um, because they weren't organized, but also they would infight with each other. Um, they sort of started from below in the early 1990s within this broader jihadi ecosystem in, in Europe at the time. But uh, as uh, individuals got arrested within different European um, uh, uh, actions as a consequence of the Algerian GIA's terrorist campaign in France in the mid-1990s, as well as people dying in the fronts in Bosnia, the Tunisians started to um, become more prominent and build up more senior roles within these broader networks in terms of logistics and facilitation, document forgery, um, and the like. Um, and so you had this linkage between the main network in Milan, which was run by Semi Asid bin Khamis, um, the one in Brussels, which was run by Tarat Marufi, as well as uh, the one um, by uh, Abu Ayyad al-Tunisi um, in London. Uh, all three of these guys were Tunisians. And this sort of helped build up the initial infrastructure um, in around, uh, you know, between 1996 through 1998, um, which eventually led them to create the Tunisian Combatant Group um, in June 2000, um, which uh, was based both in Afghanistan after the Taliban took over, but also had the network in Europe. Um, and Abu Ayyad became the leader of this group, um, and he was based in Afghanistan and was in charge of sort of the Jalalabad house for the Tunisians there. Um, and this then led the Tunisians to also go beyond just uh, getting involved in sort of this facilitation of logistics, but also start plotting attacks. Um, the attacks that they plotted in Europe all failed because that they're stopped by different um, security services in different European countries. Um, but the one thing of note was that they did plan and execute the assassination of Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was the Northern Alliance leader in Afghanistan, who had been fighting the Taliban and who had been an ally of the United States two days prior to 9-11. And this was part of the broader 9-11 uh, conspiracy um, because uh, the TCG did this in conjunction with um, Al-Qaeda's chief military um, guy, Abu Hafs al-Masri at the time. And so as a result, Al-Qaeda was planning ahead because they had a feeling that the U.S. would do some type of action uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 and therefore taking out the most important uh, leader against the Taliban would be useful. And so the Tunisians had an outreach role in these activities. Um, and then um, in the aftermath of the Iraq war, you sort of had this second generation of Tunisians getting involved as a consequence of the Iraq war, as well as the rebuilding up of AQIM networks next door in Algeria. Um, and what happened during sort of uh, the years prior to the Tunisian Revolution, um, from 2003 to 2010, you had this growth in a prison population within Tunisia as a result of either local arrests for those trying to go to Algeria to join up with AQIM to train, or individuals that had been sort of uh, expelled or rendered back to Tunisia from Europe due to plots and attacks, or for those uh, getting involved in foreign fighting abroad, whether getting arrested in Iraq, Syria, or Turkey on the way to Iraq. So therefore, the prison, in many respects, was sort of this communal experience that brought together this first generation of Tunisian jihadis that came of age more during the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan, as well as some of the earlier networks in Europe related to Bosnia and Algeria, alongside those that got more involved in relation to the Iraq War um, and the AQIM networks, and therefore... Um, uh, they began to sort of 
you know, come up with ideas and, and lessons learned. And in 2006, um, which was the 50th anniversary of uh, Tunisia's uh, independence from France, um, uh, President Ben Ali at the time let a number of people out of prison as sort of like a goodwill gesture. Um, and, and the main people were sort of uh, NAFTA members. Um, and as a result, these guys that were in prison that were jihadis were like, well, if they're getting out of prison, then maybe we will uh, soon as well. So between 2006 and 2011, uh, based off of interviews I had with Ansar al-Shari members, and I, I interviewed one of the guys who was one of the 20 founding members of sort of these plans within the prison system, is that from 2006 to 11, they began to plan what they would do when they got out of prison. So this also helps explain why they're so quick in being able to sort of mobilize um, after the revolution as well, because they've been thinking about uh, what they're going to do. But they're also internalizing within the prison system sort of the lessons learned that al-Qaeda was putting out in its own propaganda from what they perceived as the failures of Zarqawi and his excessive violence and takfir within the Iraq war context, um, because through family members, they're able to get access to different, um, uh, at least written pamphlets, not like the video messages. So there is a whole thing going on prior to the revolution. And then obviously everything that happened after the revolution sort of derives uh, in many ways from some of these plans. Let's talk about that mobilization of AST for a bit, because what you just mentioned is so important, this pre-planning, I guess you could call it. So let's talk about the mobilization. How did that happen? Uh, let's also get into Dawa. And before you do, please explain what it is for our listeners that might not know as well. Sure. So Dawa is essentially uh, proselytization um, in, the, in the way we would talk about it, though, uh, technically, it's like the, it just means like the call to Islam. Um, uh, so, in terms of after those that were released from prison, they then had people from different cities go back to their hometowns and start recruiting and 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 talking to people there within their own local networks about these ideas that they were having. Um, at first, obviously, this was relatively small since there really wasn't a large history of Tunisian jihadi activism within the country itself based off of the historical conditions I discussed. Um, however, in concert with the opening forum in May 2011, this sort of gave a broader megaphone effect to the fact that this was happening. Um, and also, uh, they had this sort of smart organizational idea where um, they had sort of this centralization of senior leadership and, and uh, strategic decision-making but they decentralized sort of um, the ways local leaders within the movement would sort of pursue what they would do. Um, and one of the ways that they're able to sort of marry this and, and provide legitimacy both from the national and local level was that they would sort of incubate these local events with a national leader alongside a local leader. So uh, the national leader would pr provide legitimacy for this local person who might not be well-known, but also the person from the particular town or village or maybe suburb um, would provide legitimacy for this national leader, too, because he'd be considered maybe like some outsider or trying to, you know, uh, force something upon their own community as well. So there's this interesting dual process. Um, so at first, a lot of the times they would go in markets and to cafes, and they would pass out different uh, literature to people about their ideas and talk about it to them. 
They would also conduct different demonstrations in front of different government buildings related to issues that were important to them, such as uh, releasing Tunisians who had been imprisoned in Iraq as a consequence of them joining up with al-Qaeda in Iraq or the Islamic State of Iraq. Um, uh, but then they also began to provide social services to people and charity, um, which obviously broadened the scope of things. And in many respects, um, these activities were in the service of spreading their ideology because when they provided blankets or clothing or food or medicines to people, they would also provide them with this Doa literature. Um, so it was a way to sort of open people up to what their broader ideas would be um, as well. And in addition to this, they also had a number of religious lectures from sort of this clerical establishment that they are building up. And it's important to note that um, before the group eventually became designated as a terrorist organization by the Tunisian government um, in August 2013, they actually took control of about 400 or so mosques um, within uh, Tunisia over the first, in, in that two and a half year period where they're able to operate um, openly. Um, and as a result, they're able to use these mosques as a way to, you know, influence people, but also as sort of this um, way to mobilize the resources as well. Um, and over time, as they're building themselves up, it sort of became more exponential. And one of the things that they did, um, which was different than what most jihadi groups did at the time, which, as I alluded to, was primarily based on the jihadi forums, was that they had um, two different Facebook pages. One was sort of an official Ansar al-Sharia Facebook page, um, which posted every single event and content that they're doing, whether... Um, posters for what they were going to do to plan so people knew about it ahead of time, but also then a number of pictures of specifically these different types of activities that they were doing. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, uh, talking the talk, but also walking the walk. And this was able to help engage people in many respects too um, because they're able to find people that were like-minded in their areas um, that were also involved in, in this because of different algorithms on Facebook, but also to see whether they had friends also maybe liking this page. And then they also had a, an Ansar al-Sharia sort of news page, which looked at uh, news within Tunisia as well as the broader global sphere related to the jihadi movement. So people would be updated on things based off of sort of how Ansar al-Sharia was trying to uh, narrate them to their own audience. Um, uh, so that was sort of the basics of this expansion of this sort of Dawa first approach. Um, however, and I'm sure we'll get to this in a little bit, this obviously was not necessarily completely sustainable in the long run just because of uh, the inherent violent nature of jihadi ideology. So let's talk about the importance of this Dawa first approach versus more of the strong, hardcore jihadists, violence, etc., how does the community help or how did it help Ansar al-Sharia impact further support and also how the group morphed later on in its lifespan? So Ansar al-Sharia and its leader Abu Ayyad uh, figured based off of the conditions in Tunisia that um, you know Tunisia wasn't ripe for jihad because um, in the aftermath of Tunisia's independence in 1956, its founding president, Habib Bourguiba, did all these different um, uh, secular reforms. 
And therefore, um, Islam within public life was pretty much eradicated in the same way um, you see with religion in France, since they sort of followed more of a laissez-faire system. Uh, As a consequence, Aboyad felt that first Tunisians needed to learn true Islam. Obviously, it's based off of AST's interpretations and not sort of uh, more orthodox interpretations. Um, before they would understand the necessity for doing jihad and to fight their various enemies locally and globally. Um, And therefore, this necessitated this sort of dawah-first approach so that they could teach people uh, these ideas and therefore um, they could then move on from there. And there's a reason why I say dawah-first is because that means jihad is second. Um, And uh, Abu Ayyad would talk about, you know, we're doing dawah now, but we're not forgetting the importance of sort of jihad later. Um, in addition to this, um, in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings, um, you saw a number of uh, guidance from a number of senior leaders within al-Qaeda, as well as associated ideologues, people like Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi, etc., um, uh, where they're saying that they should do this dawah because there was this open capacity within Tunisia um, and, and they also said the same thing in other areas as well, um, because this was also part of a rebranding effort for Al-Qaeda, but also a way of sort of changing some of the ways they went about going about sort of recruitment and, and sort of this more hearts and minds approach as a result of what happened in Iraq with Zarqawi, because they felt that their brand had been ruined by Zarqawi, as well as the fact that um, this overt uh, violence towards local Sunnis um, didn't work. Um, and, and therefore, uh, even though they talked about it prior to 2011, most of that was sort of theoretical because there wasn't the opportunity to do it. And that's why we've seen since 2011, not just in the Tunisian context, um, but also in Libya, in Yemen, in Syria, um, that in addition, especially those that are in more of the civil war context, and I'm not talking about Tunisia now, um, is that there is this broader aspect of dawah and social services and governance within uh, the jihadi context that we really hadn't seen too much of prior to 2011. Um, so uh, Tunisia was one of the earlier sort of uh, examples of this, and, and many of the Tunisians involved with AST helped then uh, their sister organization in Libya, Ansar al-Shri in Libya, build up the same type of uh, aspect uh, within, uh, you know, the areas that they're operating, like in Benghazi, Derna, uh, and CERT in particular. Um, obviously, there was still fighting going on in, in, in Libya, so ASL also was involved in uh, fighting, but they also were involved in sort of these dawah and governance type of activities too. Um, and a number of uh, Tunisians then, after this crackdown in uh, 2013, helped build up some of these aspects for both Jabhat al-Nusra, which was al-Qaeda's branch in Syria at the time, um, as well as for the Islamic State. Um, and, you know, one of the faces of the Islamic State's initial dawah campaigns in Syria in 2013 was this Tunisian Abu al-Qas al-Tunisi. Um, so you had sort of these connections and, and many of sort of these processes that you'd see play out in Syria um, from 2013 to 15. You already saw some of it playing out um, in Tunisia ahead of time. Um, it's interesting just in terms of, you know, this idea of, building of an Islamic state and, um, and things like that. So uh, 
there's a reason uh, beyond just the fact that historically Tunisians um, were in these middlemen capacities within the broader jihadi movement, and therefore after 2013, they would then be able to get connected to these foreign arenas. Um, but also because there are similarity in messaging about this idea of building an Islamic state um, and, and this whole governance aspect, administration aspect, um, that was appealing towards the Tunisians in particular in relation to what we then saw um, in Syria. As for what would happen locally, um, not every individual obviously wanted to be involved in sort of this Dawah first approach. And as a result, Abu Ayyad would be involved in sort of recruitment for people to go fight abroad, whether to Mali, whether to Libya, and whether to Syria. However, um, some, uh, you know, also figured that eventually as they grew um, uh, they would not be allowed to operate. So Ansar al-Sharia actually also had this military wing based in Libya, in Sabratha, which is just on the other side of the Tunisian-Libyan border by about 30 kilometers, maybe. Um, and uh, this is where uh, Bubakar al-Hakim, who had been involved in the jihadi movement going back to um, the beginning of the Iraq War, he was one of the first recruits of Zarqawi, um, because he had been studying Arabic next door in Syria since 2000. Um, he was the one who helped create this training camp, um, and this training camp would eventually transform from this Ansar al-Sharia one after 2013 to an Islamic State one because Bubakar al-Hakim ended up becoming one of the top external operations leaders within ISIS in Syria, um, but also the fact ISIS in Libya then sort of co-opted this training camp which would lead to the attacks we would then see in 2015 and 16 at the Bardo National Museum, the Seuss Beach attack, and the failed attempt to take over the town of Bin Gardan. Um, but at this time, back in 2012, uh, Bakr al-Hakim was sort of training individuals for what we would see later in 2013 with the assassination of two leftist politicians, but also this failed uh, plot to attack uh, Seuss Beach. So this was sort of an early version of what we would see a few years later. It was stopped ahead of time. But also there was this attack in Madia uh, that was supposed to happen against uh, Habib Bourguiba's ma mausoleum, um, which was stopped ahead of time, too, in October 2013. We could see how some of these earlier actions helped um, manifest later with what we then saw with ISIS as well. Um, internally, one of the things that was that helped undo uh, sort of AST as well was that a number of their members were involved in sort of Hezbollah-like activities as well, um, essentially moral policing. So uh, if people saw individuals uh, drinking alcohol or breaking the fast during Ramadan, um, they would beat them up and hurt them, uh, as well as them trying to light on fire Sufi shrines since they view them as sort of bid'ah or an innovation within Islam because of the idea within Sufism about intercession between sort of these holy um, leaders within the community and God, and therefore this would break um, uh, uh, um, uh, sort of monotheism within in Islam. Uh, and so these would grow over time um, as there were more pressures on AST as it grew um, but the, the, the actions that really sort of brought the beginning of the end to the group was the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Tunis in September 2012 was forced Anafta to start rethinking its light-touch approach 
Um, but then the our first uh, political assassination in uh, February 2013 against Shokri Belaid, um, which caused a huge uproar from sort of the secular leftist political parties in parliament, which pushed back against the NACTA. Um, and as a result, uh, NACTA started by May 2013, stopping a lot of these DAO activities that um, AST was doing, and then eventually the designation in uh, May 2013. So let's talk about how the designation of the group shifted how it actually operated. What was the shift like, and how did the group change after the designation? The group pretty much stopped operating after because it became illegal to do anything related to Ansar al-Sharia. So individuals either um, decided to just go back to their regular lives because they didn't want to be a part of the terrorist group and were mainly interested in it in relation to just the dawah and nonviolent activities, the charity and uh, things like that. Others got arrested. Others decided to join up with Katibat Uqba bin Nafi, which was... Uh, uh, sort of an, uh, a beginning insurgency in the mountains uh, on the border with Algeria, which was created by AQIM. Um, but uh, for the most part, a lot of people fled to Libya at first to join up with their sister organization, Ansar al-Shari in Libya, um, to help them out as well as fight in Libya. Um, and then those uh, also then went on from there after getting training to Syria in particular to first join up with Jabhat al-Nusra, but then after ISIS came into Syria in April 2013, many of them would uh, join up with ISIS in particular. Um, so as a result, uh, you know, AST became defunct more or less. Um, they continued to try and do some activities through around December 2013. But after that, it pretty much was uh, not much of anything. Um, it should be noted that Abu Ayyad fled to um, Libya as well in uh, the fall of 2013, um, and he himself would then eventually make it to Mali in um, uh, 2015, I think it was in the spring, um, and he was actually then fighting in Mali for uh, a, a number of years alongside AQIM, um, uh, and he actually died in February 2019 um, in a drone strike by the French forces. Um, but at the time, as a result of Abu Ayyad being outside of Tunisia um, and sort of the communications not being quite as strong with the movement, there was sort of a vacuum filled by other figures that had been um, leaders in Ansar al-Shariya, such as Bubakar al-Hakim, um, who I already mentioned, but also others that are more important in terms of the recruitment networks related to um, those that went to Syria, such as Kamal Zarup and... Um, uh, Bilal Shawashi, um, both of them were early purveyors of supporting ISIS over Al-Qaeda, and they called for people pledging Baya to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Um, uh, and as a result of sort of Abu Ayyad taking a middle road on this issue, essentially in the summer of 2013, sort of saying that they're staying neutral, but also um, at first sort of uh, congratulating ISIS on their victories when they took over Mosul in June 2014. Um, many Ansar al-Sharia members, uh, as well as other Tunisians that would end up being recruited to go fight in Iraq and Syria, would end up uh, joining up with ISIS because this vacuum uh, was filled. And even though essentially AST was an al-Qaeda group, 
um, the infrastructure built was being taken advantage of by ISIS instead because of sort of this uh, miscalculation by Abu Ayyad. Part of it, I think it's important to note, is that in Afghanistan in the late 90s, Abu Ayyad was an acquaintance of Abu Musab al-Zakawi, so there was that historical relationship. Um, but also the fact, our conceptions about sort of the ISIS-Al-Qaeda war um, currently shouldn't be projected back in sort of to that 2013-14 time period where it was a lot more messy and tricky, um, and it wasn't as black and white and cut as dry as it, as it is uh, now in that same manner. Um, so as a result, um, ISIS was able to take advantage of this larger population of individuals that got involved in jihadism in Tunisia in the aftermath of the revolution um, because of uh, sort of the, the mobilizing activities of AST. Um, and about 3,000 Tunisians ended up making it to um, Iraq and Syria. Um, another 1,500 went to Libya. And then about 27,000 people were stopped by the Tunisian authorities. It should be contextualized, though, that not all those 27,000 people were necessarily going to join up with jihadis abroad. It was essentially a ban on uh, people, uh, males under the age of 35, from traveling to Turkey, um, so it didn't really discriminate between those that were going for work or vacation or tourism um, or what have you. So I would imagine that not all 27,000 of those individuals were stopped because of jihadism. Um, however, I would imagine that there was definitely a, a good bunch that actually were just because there were probably, by the time AST was designated, um, about 100,000 supporters within the country total. Um, I should note, though, that that's still less than 1% of the whole population of Tunisia. So it does sound like a lot, um, but I mean, uh, you know, if you took uh, 1% of the Egyptian population, that'd be a million. So um, it's important to contextualize these types of things. Um, uh, so, so yeah, so that's sort of how things evolved and changed. And essentially, AST after its designation became defunct relatively quickly. Let's talk about the connection of AST with foreign fighters and the Islamic State and look at the facilitation of foreign fighters from Tunisia to the Islamic State or Islamic State affiliates. How did that happen? What were the connections within Tunisia and the global movement of jihad? Well, since there had already been um, these networks prior to 2011, um, as I alluded to before, in terms of people going to Iraq in particular, um, after 2011, these continued. One of the things that people don't realize is that Abu Ayyad was calling for jihad in Iraq before things were really percolating in Syria, or at least even before Jabhat al-Nusra was around in Syria in particular. So even in 2011, he was helping uh, facilitate through these networks people to go to Iraq um, before um, you know Syria became the hotspot. So this is one thing that people should uh, know first off. Um, so and then after obviously Syria became more important and more exciting for people, they then just switched it to Syria, um, and it's obviously one last step since you just go to Syria instead of going to Iraq because the networks going to Iraq usually went through Syria first. Um, what happened after uh, the designation of AST is a lot of these networks um, 
you know, some of them still were for Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda group in Syria, but many of them switched to becoming um, these pro-ISIS ones, um, and they sort of used the name uh, Shabab al-Tawheed locally um, as a way of denoting these recruitment networks. At the time, I thought this rebranding, which began in sort of January, February 2014, was sort of a way for AST to try and operate still in Tunisia, but not in the AST name. Um, but in fact, it was actually not a rebranding of AST, but sort of a way of denoting these pro-ISIS foreign fighter recruitment networks. Um, they're really being pushed by Kamal Zarouk, who I uh, mentioned earlier, and one of the earlier guys who had been involved in this, um, that had been on uh, sort of the Sharia committee of AST. So that's how you sort of had this transition away from AST to ISIS and where you had this um, uh, same network but change in focus from um, being more related to how uh, Abu Ayyad was running it to this ISIS one. You mentioned some of the members of AST and their wider connection to the jihadist movement. And I'd like to talk about that more, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, a number of figures uh, had histories um, prior to 2011. I talked about Abu Ayyad, of course. Um, uh, I talked about Bubakar al-Hakim, who, um, you know, after he did join up with Zarqawi and fought in Fallujah, he ended up getting arrested in, in Syria in around 2005 and was sent back to France because he was French-Tunisian. Um, and in prison, he was actually one of the people who helped advise um, um, and radicalize, in many ways, the individuals that eventually ended up doing the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Um, so he had an important history in these activities. Um, then you had other people like um, Wanis al-Faqi, who was involved in sort of this uh, low-level insurgency in the area in the area of uh, Suleiman in Tunisia in late 2006 and early 2007, where there is a small uh, AQIM front group that was uh, trying to uh, build up a capacity there. It was suppressed after about three weeks, but he had been involved in this and then ended up becoming a key cleric within the AST network. And then after AST was designated, he then moved down to the Sahel region. Um, Niger in particular, and was involved in sort of the work of AQIM until he was arrested in, uh, I think, 2017 and then transferred back to Tunisia. Um, then you had people like Hassan Albrik, um, who um, had been in charge of a safe house in Syria um, during the Iraq war. So he was one of the people who helped facilitate people from Syria into Iraq for the foreign fighter movement. He, after the revolution, ended up um, uh, being the head of the Dawa program for AST. Um, so you could see how some of these prior experiences played out with individuals, whether in terms of their leadership within AST later, or then them uh, going on to doing stuff with ISIS, um, such as another figure like Moaz al-Fazani, um, who had uh, previously been in Afghanistan in the late 1990s and was actually involved in Al-Qaeda's chemical weapons uh, program. Um, uh, and then he later on was involved uh, alongside Bubakar al-Hakim in building up this 
training camp in uh, Sabratha, Libya, and he actually became uh, a senior leader with the Islamic State in Libya after IS um, began building itself up there in the spring of 2014. So there are a number of individuals and, and connections in relation to this, and I already, of course, talked about the guy Abu al-Qas al-Tunisi, who became sort of the face of IS's uh, early efforts in Dawa programming within the Syrian context um, in Raqqa and Aleppo at that early time period after April 2013. So we've mostly been talking about male figures because, of course, there is a much huger involvement of males within jihadism and so forth. But you have a very nice section on Tunisian women and their involvement, especially during the period of Islamic State and so forth. So I was wondering if we could actually talk about that a bit, because it tends to be the sections that we don't talk about, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And unfortunately, just for space limitations and the flow of the book, I it, it didn't make sense to add uh, something about the women involved with AST, because there are actually women involved with AST, too. Um, but it is something I'm uh, currently in the process of writing or planning to write um, uh, a broader like journal article about it, uh, nice. just because I think it's important to get out there, um, sort of this prehistory of the stuff with ISIS. So uh, just as background, um, uh, there were women involved in AST. Um, it's hard to determine how many women were involved, um, just because it was less prominent in their propaganda. Um uh, but there were cases where they did show off women involved in demonstrations, whether um, on the streets or in front of, like, their interior ministry. Uh, you also had women going to these Dao events and lectures, though uh, in the flyers for the events it would say women have to sit in the back uh, just because of the patriarchal nature of the jihadi movement. Um, and then there are also cases where uh, these women would, uh, you know, provide uh, presence and charity activities as well. I remember off the top of my head in particular, there was an event where uh, some of these women in AST would go to a local hospital and provide gifts to um, uh, people that were sick uh, and, and as well also then provide sort of the Dao literature too. Um, so you had Tunisian women involved in these activities um, at the same time prior to the ISIS phenomenon. And as a result, um, a number of these women then went on to join up with uh, the people in Syria. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things was that uh, Abu Jafar al-Hattab, who was on the Sharia committee of uh, AST, he said women could join uh, to go to Syria. But at that point, he said that unless the local group said it was wajib or an obligation for women to come and join, then they needed to go sort of with a mahram or somebody that would be a guardian towards them. Um, so as a result, usually the women that would go would go with a husband or a brother or a father type figure. Um, this would change, though, because that was sort of in the context with Jabhat al-Nusra was the main uh, uh, group um, in Syria at the time. Uh, uh, and as a result, this would change with ISIS because uh, one of the key ISIS ideologues then in 2014 um, wrote this tract essentially saying that women can go no matter what. Um, uh, and, and therefore, this opened the floodgates to a, a broader 
grouping of people that didn't necessarily go with somebody else. Um, and then, so when they were there, many Tunisian women had important roles in sort of the administrative side of ISIS, um, whether as teachers, whether as nurses, um, also sort of involved in, um, you know, arranging marriages between different people. Um, but the most important figure in this context was Um Rayan al-Tunisi. Um, she helped actually found the Al-Khansa Brigade um, uh, alongside uh, a dozen or so other Tunisians as well as people from other uh, foreign contingencies. And essentially this was sort of the moral policing um, aspect uh, of uh, the Islamic State for women because um, uh, you know, there are certain issues related to women in terms of, you know, wearing the veil, um, uh, as well as at checkpoints, um, and things like that, where only women could be involved because they didn't want men to, you know, pat down women or well perceived as women because sometimes men would wear a niqab to try and get through checkpoints. Um, uh, so, uh, she had an important role in this, um, and she ended up actually, after founding it in the Syrian context, eventually moved to Libya after IS, uh, built itself up and controlled territory in Libya to do it there as well. Um, uh, what's noteworthy about her too is that at least according to, um, some of the sources, uh, she was actually involved in some of the torturing of the Jordanian pilot Muaz al-Kasesba after he had been captured. And what's interesting is after his capture, the person who was holding him was another Tunisian, a male, um, who actually had his arm around him. So you can see how the, these broader connections happen uh, between the male and female members of uh, Tunisian jihadis within this context as well. Um, what's interesting about the women also uh, with IS in Libya um, is that uh, they allegedly did military training as well in the Libyan context. Um, uh, and there are a number of women from Tunisia involved in this um, uh, that were coming and they weren't coming with anybody else. So they're relatively young. Uh, so uh, they did have important roles to play within this context. And <clears throat> many of these Tunisian women um, that are still um, in Syria, in particular in the Northeast, that are in the IDP camps, especially the whole camp, are actually considered um, sort of some of the key leaders in maintaining sort of control or um, the IS networks within these camps as the males are imprisoned or outside of that context as sleeper cells in uh, the lower Euphrates Valley or in Iraq. Um, so <clears throat> many of these women have been able to be key players in sort of inculcating maybe uh, the next potential generation of their children or orphans within this context. So as we all know, the Islamic State has lost significant territory and it's still existent, but not what it used to be. And looking at it from the Tunisian side of it and the Tunisian context, what would you say now is the future of the Tunisian jihadist movement? Is there still one? Is it fizzling out? What is the status of that and potentially the future? 
Yeah, so the Tunisians, they're still very much involved in this movement, but a lot of the action related to it is primarily happening within the prison context, um, whether um, <clears throat> we're talking about the prisons in northeast Syria or the IDP camps in northeast Syria that I just talked about, um, or the actual prisons within Tunisia itself, um, since a number of people um, have been uh, arrested. Uh, I should note that about a thousand Tunisians have returned from Iraq, Syria, and Libya. Um, not all of them are in prison, though, because the Tunisian government has done interviews with people to do, sort of do risk assessments. And the fact that there haven't been that many attacks in Tunisia over the last few years suggests that, uh, so far at least, uh, they're doing a relatively good job in dealing with it. However, um, there are still uh, reports of torture within the prison system. Um, and uh, in many ways, similar to sort of how gangs work uh, in prisons in the U.S., you see similar dynamics within the prisons in Tunisia, where these jihadi cells within the prison are uh, sort of controlling people, trying to um, recruit new people, and things like that. So one of the issues is that Tunisia still holds these hardcore jihadists alongside petty criminals within their um, prison system. Another issue that's problematic is that even though they've been starting to implement sort of this pilot programming um, uh, within the prison for rehabilitation and reintegration, <clears throat> because of this uh, peer pressure opportunities as a result of sort of this gang-like jihadi network within the prisons, it makes it a lot harder for people to be able to actually do it who are disillusioned or maybe want to just turn a new leaf and start over again in their lives. Um, one of the things that I'm positive about, though, but we'll see what happens in more of the medium to long term, five to ten years or so, is that Tunisia is taking this seriously. Um, and because it is a democracy, it can harness its civil society. Um, so one of the things it's done is uh, put out a grant to these five associations who are going to be now helping um, with some CVE-related efforts on sort of the preventative side, but also on the back end with this rehabilitation and, and reintegration programming um, within Tunisia. Um, and one of the things, too, is that the National um, Counterterrorism Committee, which is part of the presidency in Tunisia, has also held a series of workshops with local politicians, um, and it should note that Tunisia has uh, a municipal um, political body, so uh, their system has become more decentralized um, through uh, this democratic transition. So um, they've had these workshops with these local politicians, um, but also uh, local, local social workers, psychologists, religious leaders, um, to sort of have a better idea for these people about how to handle and deal with the return of people into society. Um, and the important thing is that it's happened in every single governorate in Tunisia, not just sort of in Tunis or in some of the more main coastal areas. Um, and as a result, um, this will hopefully provide the basis um, for these people. Of course, it's easier said than done. Um, and we just saw last week when there was an attack on a police patrol in Tunis, um, at least one of the two people involved in it uh, actually had recently gotten out of prison. So 
you could see that uh, these things aren't perfect yet, and, and many of these programs and ideas have only come on uh, in the last two years or so within Tunisia. So there's a lot of building up processes and working out and learning from uh, different actions in the next few years or so. Um, but one of the things uh, that makes me um, think that there could be something that possibly could work in, in, in the longer term is that they've also implemented sort of monitoring and evaluation functioning within a lot of this programming and activities that they're attempting to do. Um, somebody might say, oh, this is just, you know, they're just putting in there to say it and it sounds nice for their, um, you know, USAID or grants similar to like that from different EU states. Um, but they actually just held at the end of January this year a workshop on how to do um, monitoring and evaluation in the best way possible. So it seems like they're taking it seriously. Obviously, it's a very tough issue, um, and you're not going to necessarily have 100% success. But I do think uh, because it is a democracy um, and it does have civil society, uh, that there's a greater chance um, for things to potentially work out in the longer term than, say, in other Arab states uh, where it's purely authoritarian, completely top-down, and therefore they don't want any involvement in local actors because they might be worried that it could be sort of a threat to their own power. But again, we'll see what happens in, I would say, five to ten years. We'll definitely have a better idea about this. Well, you've been on the Loopcast before, Aaron, and we like to give guests the moment to maybe touch on something that we've not been able to touch on in the full discussion or have a final thought. So I want to provide you with that opportunity. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things to note is is considering how far Tunisia has come since 2011. Uh, they're dealing with this uh, transition to democracy um, while also writing a constitution and dealing with a lot of the economic issues that had been the reason why people got in the streets in the first place. But then uh, this huge security problem happening, um, and they've been very... Um, informed from this experience and wanting to learn from it and get better. And we've seen a huge improvement in their capacity and understanding of this issue over uh, the past four or five years or so in particular, um, especially on the military and law enforcement front. But now they're turning towards sort of uh, more of the CVE aspect instead of CT aspect of it. Um, so I'm really interested to see how much they're able to do and how much people can learn from their own experience potentially since they're trying to tap into local actors and civil society too in a way you don't really see in a lot of other uh, Arab contexts. Um, and so uh, hopefully this will be a change of things than sort of the cycle we see historically um, but, you know, there still are lots of challenges um, due to this prisoner population, especially um, when those that get let out um, and what that could mean in the future, um, but also the potential for uh, sort of uh, things in Libya to get worse, depending on what happens with General Khalifa Haftar. Um, but also, uh, especially I worry about um, what the status of people are in northeast Syria um, just because they're languishing in these prisons and camps um, and not being repatriated for a variety of political reasons in Tunisia, similar to the way we see with many um, Western countries. Um, they have the same 
democratic dilemma since the local population doesn't necessarily want to bring these people back. Um, but because of that, especially for the children, the longer they're in that environment, the more likelihood they just become socialized into that milieu. And, you know, I, one of the things I say is that, you know, people are like, oh, well, will these children be radicalized? And I'll say, no, they won't be radicalized. They grew up this way, so they don't know anything else. Um, so uh, it's an interesting dynamic, especially if the Islamic State also um, then becomes uh, stronger and breaks these people out in the same way we saw them break people out of prisons um, in the past. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot to think about um, and, and to marinate about this issue, even though compared to, uh, to say, 2011 to uh, 15 or 16 or so, things were a lot more destabilizing in some ways, and things right now are relatively stable in, in 2020, um, uh, but there's still work to do to hopefully uh, make this become uh, less of an issue over time uh, for the Tunisian population, its citizenry, and its government. Well, there's definitely a lot to consider and look at towards the future. But I just want to thank you for coming on the show, Aaron. And your book is an amazing piece of work and research, so I highly recommend people read it, especially if you're interested in Tunisia and jihad in general as well. So the book is Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad. And like I said, thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast to discuss it, Aaron. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully uh, people like the book. (laughs) 